Thank you, Sarah. We continue in our sermon series called Humble Hope, our study of First and Second Thessalonians. I'll have you stand for our word this morning, our scripture reading. Not an easy text. I tell you that ahead of time so that your ears are attuned to what God is saying. And we will navigate this together. This is from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. Hear God's word this morning. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are also suffering. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer punishment of eternal destruction, separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. When he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. To this end, we always pray for you asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith so that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Even when it's a difficult text, we say, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. It's great to see you this morning. It's great to see some Faces that we haven't seen at our live uh, services yet. If you're live streaming with us, we miss you. Uh, we hope that you feel like you are present with us here today. And it's just wonderful to be together. So for the past couple of weeks, uh, we at home have been watching a show with the boys called The Good Place. Is anybody else watching the show or has already watched this show? Okay. Um, I think we're a little late to the party on this show, but we've really been enjoying it. It's, uh, it's an engaging and funny sitcom uh, for, I would say, teenagers and up, so young ones probably not, but teenagers and up. It's, uh, it's a really intriguing story. I'm not going to spoil it for you other than to tell you the premise of this story because it's been in my mind this week as I've been going through this text. The show is built on a modernist understanding of heaven and hell, that there's this good place and there's a bad place in the afterlife. The show sort of elaborately reduces our predominant 21st century ideas of the afterlife following several characters who learn about their eternal fates and, and sort of live within them. And the entire premise is, is built on this idea that in your life you have a score. You have a score. It's either a positive score or a negative score. For the good deeds that you've done in your life, you get positive points. That's the green. And for the bad deeds that you've done in your life, you get negative points. And if at the end of your life, your overall number is positive, then you get to go to the good place. If it's negative, if it's in the red, then you go to the bad place. There's even this large computer screen that shows up over and over again in the show that serves as a ledger, sort of keeping tally of where everyone on earth sits in terms of their score. Let me show you a brief clip to explain a little bit better. Uh, hello, everyone, and welcome to your first day in the afterlife. You are all, simply put, good people. But 
How do we know that you are good? How are we sure? During your time on Earth, every one of your actions had a positive or a negative value, depending on how much good or bad that action put into the universe. Every sandwich you ate, every time you bought a magazine, every single thing you did had an effect that rippled out over time and ultimately created some amount of good or bad. You know how some people pull into the breakdown lane when there's traffic and they think to themselves, ah, who cares, no one's watching. We were watching. Surprise! <laughs> anyway, when your time on Earth has ended, we calculate the total value of your life using our perfectly accurate measuring system. Only the people with the very highest scores, the true cream of the crop, get to come here, to the good place. What happens to everyone else, you ask? Don't worry about it. The point is, you are here because you lived one of the very best lives that could be lived. And you won't be alone. Your true soulmate is here too. That's right, soulmates are real. One of the other people in your neighborhood is your actual soulmate, and you will spend eternity together. So welcome to eternal happiness. Welcome to the good place. Sponsored by otters holding hands while they sleep. You know the way you feel when you see a picture of two otters holding hands? That's how you're going to feel every day. Now, full disclosure, this show is not built on a biblical theology of the afterlife, okay? I don't know that that's what they were thinking about or a biblical understanding of the afterlife. But what it does do is it exposes many of the deeply held and deeply unexamined views that everyday people like you and me have about the afterlife and good and evil. And I can't help but think about that counter, that ledger, that scoreboard, and wonder how many of us live with that in our hearts and our minds, kind of all the time. For others, certainly, the people that we're around, but also for ourselves. And I think this text today, this difficult text, causes us to think about how we view the afterlife, because there's quite a bit of talk in this text about hell, the bad place, and the people who are going there. Now, these themes carry through the end of chapter 2 in 2 Thessalonians, so in the next two weeks, Joy and I are going to be addressing these topics head-on as the text demands of us. These are not always fun topics. And I'm guessing that you might be a little, uh, not, uh, you might not be super excited about this this morning. You might have felt like it was a little bit off-color to, to really focus in on these texts. I mean, people are suffering. There might be, even be people here today where you would say, like, I'm suffering. I'm, I'm undergoing a difficult time right now. Very few people that I talk to in this day and age are like super encouraged and happy about their life and what's going on. We don't know what tomorrow's going to bring. So many things are uncertain. Work is uncertain. If you're, a, if you're a student here, you might have thought, yeah, I get to go back to school and see my friends and, and have some normal routine, and you're realizing that that's, that's going to be at least reduced, or maybe you're not going to have that at all. And I know your parents are thinking about that, right, and how that's upsetting their lives. I'm guessing that you might have come this morning and preferred to hear a sermon that was uplifting and happy and positive, and instead, what, do, what are we giving you? We're giving you hell and judgment and flaming fire. Sorry about that. Uh, but this is what it means to be obedient to the text and trust that God is speaking through the text. And, and, and let me tell you something. This is actually good news this morning. It's not bad news. It's good news. And, and actually, as I've been going through this text this week, I, 
I've been, I've been praising God for how pertinent this word is right now. If I had been given a free Sunday to say, to choose whatever text you want to preach on, I never would have chosen this text, right? The only reason that we're going through it is because we're going through these letters verse by verse. But I was amazed at how God gives us a word that's so pertinent for right now. Maybe now more than ever. Now, when we read this text from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, we, we see those prominence, uh, those prominent themes of, of judgment and heaven, hell, the afterlife, who gets to go where when, when life is over. And they, the idea of that ledger sort of hangs over this text. God's calculus of who goes where, the final score that determines the future. But that's actually not really the point of this text at all. In fact, this text isn't really primarily about the afterlife. It's about the present realities that we face here on earth. Going back to verse 4, which was from actually from last week, before our text begins, it says, Therefore we ourselves boast among the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith during all your persecutions and afflictions that you are enduring. And then, in our text, verse 5, it says, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. What's the evidence of the righteous judgment of God? It's the suffering. The suffering that these Thessalonians are enduring. We've talked about it all summer long. This Thessalonian church was under immense pressure and persecution, so much so that Paul was concerned that they weren't going to make it. He had to leave because he was being fiercely persecuted, and he left a, a group of people that's about half the size of this gathering right here as a church, and he's like, I don't know if these baby Christians are going to make it. They were marginalized. They had they'd been disowned often by their family. They were persecuted by Jews and Greeks alike, and, and yet they thrived under this persecution. And Paul has a word for them under this period of suffering, that this church whose lives were defined by loss and pressure. He says that the suffering that you're undergoing right now is evidence of the righteous judgment of God. Now, we might think of the judgment of God as some sort of future reality, maybe even make sitcoms about it, right? But it's actually a present reality for us. It's a present reality. So here's my theory, and I see it borne out all the time in, in the life of our church, uh, many of the Christians that I know. Here's, here's what I think. I think the idea of that ledger, that scorecard, isn't primarily about heaven or hell for us. It's actually something that's really present for us on a daily basis. I've seen it hanging over several of you over the last few months. We've been faced with suffering, right? Again, maybe some of you would go, I'm personally suffering. And certainly we've had a front row seat to the suffering of others in our world. Now there are a couple of reactions that we see. One, one we see is, is people grasping for meaning. That there has to be some, some deeper meaning that I can sort of suss out from all of this difficulty and this suffering. Joy's actually going to talk about that next week, so stay tuned for that. But a more prevalent reaction that, that I see as I talk with, with many of you is, is this idea of, of the ledger and looking at our our current state in that sense. Basically asking, what did we do to make this happen? Is America, you know, America's been hit so hard by this pandemic, is it because we have some sort of corporate sin that we haven't, we haven't confessed? Is it because God is just sort of giving us over because of poor leadership? Or, or is this the consequence of globalization and free trade and traveling mobility and the loss of national borders? Is, did the is what happened, did the ledger just get so far into the red for all of humanity that God's like, I gotta send a pandemic, because that would happen. I need to punish the world. Or, or questions like, if I'm a generally good person, can I avoid illness? 
If, if I do enough good things, can I avoid that? And, and if I do suffer, is it because God is, is punishing me for something I've done wrong? Am I being punished by God? I think we've all been there. I think we've all had those questions sort of creep in, and I know that some of us have those questions persistently in our minds, particularly in times of suffering. But let me suggest that this thinking, those kind of questions, are actually a byproduct of a lack of a theology of suffering. In other words, we don't know how to suffer well. We're not trained to suffer very well. We spend, we spend so much time in our lives seeking to avoid suffering that when we have to go through it, we don't know how to interpret it in a healthy way. Just as a, a, a case study in that, I was grieved, as I know many of you were, by the massive chemical explosion in Beirut this week. I don't know if you saw the, the image of, of what would have happened if that happened on our Chicago lakefront. I don't know if you saw that, but our windows here would have been blown out. That's how big that explosion was. And I'm watching this, and, and I see the injuries and the death and the destruction, and, and I felt the weight of that suffering especially for our Christian Maronite brothers and sisters, of which there are many in Beirut. So what did I almost immediately do, though? Where did my mind and my heart almost immediately go? And maybe you're with me in this. Who's responsible for this? Was it a terrorist attack? Was it a bomb? Um, is, is there some sort of grand conspiracy? Was there a larger narrative here? Is there, is there a reason for this? Let's demand justice for this tragedy. Is God punishing these people in Lebanon. There has, to be a, there has to be this kind of reason that I can get my hands around and there needs to be someone or something that, I, that, that can be judged for this suffering. And I think that's the natural inclination for a lot of us. And that's exactly, I think, why Paul is addressing things the way he is in this passage. It would make sense that the Thessalonians might struggle with the same sort of questions in their time of suffering and persecution. Those questions of, of why is this happening? And, he, and, and Paul offers like four responses that I'm going to, more than that, but four that I'm going to point out to you that I would invite you to consider in terms of your own relationship with suffering and the suffering of the world around you. His first reaction is this. God will come as judge. That's pretty prominent in this text, right? But think about it this way. Before the gospel of Jesus came to the city of Thessalonica, there might have been a handful of Jews who had an understanding of resurrection and judgment. That was part of their theology. But the predominant view of, of Thessalonian inhabitants would have been that the dead were doomed to sort of this just dismal, gloomy afterlife. And we actually see this in a lot of first century literature, ancient literature, even, even literature like the Odyssey, where, where dead people just become these kind of moaning, dismal souls right? That would have been probably 90% of the people in this city. But then here comes the gospel of Jesus that Paul brings. And it is so different. It has totally different and clear claims about this. And it's that God is going to come as a fair and righteous judge. He's going to judge all of humanity and determine who is eternally with God and those who are eternally separated from God. Heaven and hell are realities for Paul. And we see this in verse 5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God and is intended to make you worthy of the kingdom of God for which you're also suffering. Paul's reminding his readers that suffering is a reminder of the fact that God is the ultimate judge. Yes, things are not fair and right in this world. If you feel that way, that's an okay thing for you to feel. 
But there will come a time when Jesus is going to come as judge and make all things right because he's fair and he's good. And that leads to the next response from Paul, which is God judges, not us. God judges, not us. I know you're super excited for me to read these verses again because they were so uplifting, but let me just go through it again. For it is indeed just of God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to the afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will suffer punishment of eternal destruction separated from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes to be glorified by his saints and to be marveled at on that day among all who have believed because our testimony to you was believed. That's a tough passage, but I want you to know it's also sort of a parenthesis. It's parenthetical. This is not the main meaning of this passage, but it's important enough that Paul wants to use these verses to make a point, and that is this. God judges, not us. We're so quick to seek justice, right? To judge and, and, and to seek justice for wrongs, to figure out who's causing the suffering and make sure that they get paid back in equal measure. But that's not Paul's message. Paul says that God's going to take care of the adversaries of these Thessalonians. They don't need to worry about that. It's God who knows who's worthy of his presence eternally in heaven and those who have stood opposed to him and will be separated from him eternally. So any effort that we spend in the judgment of others is really wasted time and space because we don't get to judge. God does. And I don't know if you're like me. I find this to be an incredible relief. I don't want that responsibility, right? That's such a burden to carry. Third response that Paul has in this passage, and I hope this is encouraging to you, is that God won't allow this suffering to continue indefinitely. Part of the good news for these Christians in Thessalonica who are suffering, who are being persecuted, is that God's going to give them relief from their troubles. He's going to deal with those who are persecuting, with, persecuting them. And yes, suffering is part of, of every human being's experience, and Christ followers are not exempt from that. But to be a Christ follower does not mean perpetual suffering. God's merciful. God cares. God lifts up those who are burdened, and he, and he takes care of them. He nourishes them. And maybe this is the only thing you need to hear today, so if, if so, hear it clearly. This current suffering that we are in will end at some point, and God is working towards that end. He is with us in the midst of this time. It's not going to last forever. And then the last response comes up in verses 11 and 12, where he prays and blesses these Thessalonian believers, saying, To this end we always pray for you, asking that our God will make you worthy of his call and will fulfill by his power every good resolve and work of faith so that the name of the Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, you in him, according to the grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. The final response is this, that suffering should be a time that increases our faith and our good deeds. Suffering is not a time when we should go into hibernation. It's not a time when God is silent. It's a time when he's refining us and maturing us and, and giving us new visions and dreams where we experience the power of God in new ways and we're strengthened in our resolve of following him. Times of suffering are not merely times for us to try and get through as quickly as possible. They are times that reframe things for us and give us an eternal perspective. In essence, what is Paul praying for here? He's praying, I, I pray that you would be able to suffer well. 
And in doing so, you would bring glory to God. So if I can put these responses, these truths, all together in one sentence for you, this is my best attempt at it. We are in a time of suffering. And we are called to suffer well, rather than persistently asking why or judging those who are causing or contributing to the suffering. Because God's going to take care of all that, and he's going to make everything right in the end. There you go. That's what this text is saying to us. And I hope you'd agree with me that this is actually a super encouraging word for us today. It's a super encouraging word for the season that we find ourselves in, this unique time of suffering in our world. And I just want to note how radically countercultural this is. If you miss that, you're missing the heart of this text. Get this, Polybius, he's a second century historian. And he actually wrote extensively about the Macedonian Empire um, uh, being conquered by the Romans. That's where Thessalonica is in, in Macedonia, the north of Greece. And he writes in, in several places making clear inference that the reason that the Macedonians lost and were overtaken by the Romans must have been because they had issues in their society, that there was corruption, that, that, that there, was, there was some sort of, of corporate ill that was going on, or else they never would have been defeated by the Romans. Do you see what's going on there? He lived like so many in his time and in every century since, all the way up till today, with a counter, a meter, a scoreboard, a ledger. The Macedonians must have been in the red. That's why they were defeated. That's why they lost. For him, any sort of suffering, any sort of ill that we face was a sign of internal decay, that something was really wrong. It shouldn't be that way. And here comes Paul with a message that couldn't be any more different. Now, to him, this temporal suffering was not a sign of divine punishment by God, of rejection by God, but paradoxically, that suffering is a sign of acceptance by God. When we're suffering, it means that we are very near to the heart of God. Now, that doesn't mean that we go and we create suffering around us to experience the heart of God. But when we undergo suffering, we ought to embrace it. And we ought to resolve to suffer well in the midst of it and even give thanks to God and his work in the midst of it. Let him sort out the judgment of that suffering. Just know that he is in it. And that is as countercultural now as it has ever been. And here's why it's countercultural, and this is the most encouraging word, and then I'm going to close. We live in a world that consciously or unconsciously does really believe in that divine ledger, that divine meter, that divine scoreboard. And I think we believe that it's not only operative in terms of, of, of determining some sort of eternal fate, but it's some indicator of blessing or suffering right now. Well, I need to tell you something. There is a divine scoreboard. There is a ledger. But when God looks at that ledger, when he looks at our life, he doesn't see a score like this. He doesn't see a list of all the vices and the virtues. Oh, sure, he knows them. He's all-knowing. He's all-powerful. But that's not how his ledger is calibrated. No. God looks at our lives, and he sees our lives through the lens of his son, Jesus Christ. 
Jesus came to be like us. The only human ever who had a perfect ledger, by the way. He was way in the green. No red at all. The greatest composite score that's ever been tallied for a life. But Jesus, God's own son, chose the cross. The very symbol of suffering. He went to the bad place so that we don't have to. And then he rose again to life so that we don't have to live with a number hanging over our heads. An ever-accumulating score following us our whole lives. No, his work on the cross covers us with joy and kindness and love and sufficiency. It's because of the cross, which is the paradigm through which all of Christian life is lived, that we can endure our current suffering with joy and with peace and with confidence. It's the cross that frees us from the need to judge other people eternally. God's going to do that. It's the cross that motivates us to live in such a way that our faith and deeds increase in times of suffering to the glory of God. If our lives were based on a composite score, not one of us would be considered righteous. But through Jesus, we have hope that in the midst of our suffering, we see a sign of our acceptance, both now and for all of eternity. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, free us from our need to judge. Free us from the sense of our vices and our virtues following us everywhere we go. Free us from our desire to speed through suffering as quick as we possibly can. Instead, Lord, would you focus our eyes on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith? Would you focus our hearts and our minds on Jesus, the one who went to the cross, the very symbol of suffering, so that when we suffer, we are not alone? So that when we suffer, we don't have to say, what is it that I did wrong? Instead, we go, Look at what Jesus did for me. Lord, we lift up this season of heaviness, of suffering to you. Lord, if we don't feel that suffering acutely in our own lives, we know that there are so many around us who do. Would you teach us what it means to suffer well? And we know that without you, without an understanding of, of who you are, of your son Jesus, of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we cannot suffer well, Lord. So would you teach us instead what it means to fix our eyes upon you? So that we might even see times like this as times where we are very near to your heart. We are near to the heart of Jesus. We thank you, Lord, for our suffering and your work within it. And we thank you, Lord, that this season of suffering will not last forever. We pray, come Lord Jesus.
Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing Cornerstone together.